Well, good morning, church family. Or is it afternoon yet? No, it's still morning. Okay, good, good morning. Good morning. Hey, um, so, hey, we're having a meal next door, so you don't have to worry about lunch. You don't have to worry about beating the Baptists. We're, we're all right. We're good. So um, I, just, I want to let you all know before anybody gets too confused that this title is a play on words, okay? Uh, you may be aware that conversion means to change, and therapy is a, is a type of helpful treatment. But usually when you hear the phrase, Conversion therapy, uh, it's referring to a, a medical or a psychological treatment for people that want to stop having uh, inappropriate desires or proclivities, uh, such as homosexuality. Um, and they get this treatment to help them change because they want to have healthy desires. And that is a good and it's a healthy and an admirable thing. But today we're actually looking at another type of conversion therapy. And it is the kind that God will do in the life of every individual who comes to Christ. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Last week we blasted through this, this whole chapter along with part of 21, and the reason uh, was that it was all one story, and it holds together really well. Uh, but today we're going to go back and we're going to read Paul's testimony about his conversion. So uh, here's some stuff for the bingo and, and the word games while we get caught up in Paul's situation. By the way, a whole lot of new stuff in here. So those of you kids and rare adults that want to come up and get some stuff. we got lots of good stuff. Um, so here's some stuff. Uh, you may recall last week, Paul was in the middle of a riot. And once again, it was not his fault, right? He was in the middle of a riot, and he got an opening to share the good news, right in the midst of all this ruckus. And so uh, he, being Paul, he decided he was going to take that opportunity. And so he tried to share the gospel with the crowd, and his speech to them is the part that we're going to revisit today. And, and something really interesting, I think, about Paul's conversion story is that it gets told three different times in the book of Acts, and each time we get different details. Okay, The first one is uh, Luke's narrative, which is in Acts chapter 9. We went over that several months back. Today's passage is the second story as Paul recounts it. And then the third time we hear about Paul's conversion, it's also Paul telling it, but it's in Acts 26. It's the shortest of these uh, three stories, but it contains a whole lot of additional information. Now, this is not an issue. It's not a problem because new information is not the same thing as contradiction, okay? So remember, with different audiences or with different emphases, uh, stories are often told differently. And so today, I want you to remember what Paul's trying to do. He is taking this chance to share his story with a lot of angry Jewish people who think he's been teaching something he hasn't, okay? And his first order of business is to clear himself from these false accusations. And so uh, it's probably so they'll give him the credibility, right, so he can tell them about Jesus. So once you just remember this, Paul knew that Jesus is the Messiah that these people have been waiting for all this time, okay? But most of the Jews didn't receive him because they didn't recognize him. You know, they're expecting him to be a, a, a military hero along the lines of King David, and instead they got a wandering rabbi who was executed. So we know, and Paul knew, of course, that Jesus was crucified to pay for our sins, as the Scriptures foretold, and also that he rose from the grave, showing his power over death. But nonetheless, many of these people, Paul's countrymen, had their hearts closed to belief. They were closed off. But Paul loved the Jewish people, and he wanted to give them another chance to accept the truth. So even now, despite having just 
been badly beaten, okay? He takes this opportunity to speak to the very people that wanted him dead. And that's where we pick up today in verse 1, okay? Actually, it's verse 3. We're going to pick up in verse 3. I am a Jew. That is important right up front, okay? Because this, this is his audience wants to know that he is a Jew. And so that's what he opens with. Born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Now, that wasn't a city in Israel, all right? But it, but it was part of the Roman Empire, And in this part of the Roman Empire, birth automatically entitled a person to Roman citizenship and all of its benefits. So that's important for later. He says, but brought up in this city. Now, where were they? Remember? Jerusalem. Thank you. That that was the city for a Jew, right? That was Zion. That was the holy city. It was the capital, first first of Judah. And then after the... the, uh, Babylonian captivity, they came back. And so all of Israel was now uh, where Israel was their capital, or Jerusalem was their capital. So, the best known and the most Jewish place probably in the whole world, okay? And then he goes on, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, which is also a big name, okay? Gamaliel was a, a hugely popular and influential rabbi from around the time of Christ. He actually has a, a minor role earlier in the book of Acts. Um, you may remember this, this is back in chapter 5. Um, the Sanhedrin wanted to to execute the apostles, and he stood up on their behalf. And if you don't mind, let's just turn there real quick. Let's just flip a few pages back. We're going to go to Acts chapter 5. Um, I'm just going to share a little part of this. Um, just First of all, this is Peter. Okay, If you go back a little further, in, in verse 30, Peter is speaking to the leaders of the people. He says, the God of our fathers, and he's talking about the same God they've They've known all along the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God had exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, it's, it, I don't know how it's actually pronounced, it's just, it, it's either way. A teacher of the law, held in honor by all of the people, stood up and gave orders for the men to be put outside for a little while, okay? And so, he says to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. And then he spends a, a little while just telling them, reminding them about some, some wannabe messiahs who were not really messiahs, but they misled people, and and then they failed in their quest, and then he comes to verse 38, and he warns them. He says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And they took him at his advice. Now, he didn't let them alone. They didn't let the the men alone. They did beat them, but they didn't kill him. So you may remember the rest that that they do let the apostles go after the beating. The apostles even glorified God that they were honored enough to suffer for the name. I think that's so cool. Uh, And they just kept on preaching. But anyway, Gamaliel, he was was a pretty sharp guy, all right? And he was well-known. And so being a student of Gamaliel would have boosted Paul's credibility with the people. So he was taught by Gamaliel, 
according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers. And that means not just the law of Moses, but all the additional traditions and the stuff that got tacked on top of that. Being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Okay? So in other words, A, I was just like you guys. That's what he's saying. I was like you. And then B, there's an admirable quality to you because you are clearly zealous for God. So he's kind of you know, buttering them up just a little bit so that they're maybe more likely to listen. Um, th- this was a badge of honor for any self-respecting Jew. You wanted to be known as zealous for God because zealous is literally the same Greek word as jealous. And it means that your devotion for God is so strong it causes you to be hostile against those who feel that you believe are against God. And that makes sense to the next couple of verses. He says, I persecuted this way, that's Christianity, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. In other words, look into it and you'll see that I'm telling you the truth. My credentials are impeccable. That's what he's saying here. Okay, From them, that's from these elders, I received letters to the brothers. Now here he means Jews rather than Christians because of his audience. So he says, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward, toward excuse me, Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So remember, Paul was not just attacking and imprisoning Christians. He's active in trying to get them to recant through torture, possibly even executing some of them. He was doing terrible things in the name of God, thinking that he was serving God. So so in some ways, pre-conversion Paul has more in common with a member of ISIS than an evangelical Christian, okay? But God is in the business of conversion therapy. In Paul's testimony, there's one dominant theme that just jumps out to me all throughout, and it is this. When it comes to pretty much any spiritual movement in our lives, but especially salvation itself, God initiates and we respond. God initiates and we respond. In other words, God is always the one who sets the things of faith in motion. Jesus himself said, no one comes to him unless the Father who sent him draws them. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but the, the response part is also incredibly important. And I want, I want you guys to know, because I know that we've, we've talked about this, kind of danced around it here and there in Sunday school. I, I am a firm believer in twin biblical truths. God is sovereign in whom he enlightens, and every man, woman, and, 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 and even uh, children to some extent are responsible for what they do, for their own choices. And just as no one except Jesus will be in heaven because they deserve to be in heaven, likewise, no one is going to be in hell that doesn't deserve to be there. We are all responsible regarding what we do with what we are given. We're going to see several instances of this truth in Paul's testimony uh, as he shares God's grace and mercy in his life. So let's continue with today's text. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon... A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Okay, I want to, let's just be clear about something, okay? On the way to Damascus, Paul was not seeking Christ. Can we agree on that? Okay, he was seeking Christians to persecute them, but he was in no way seeking Jesus. He did not find Jesus on the road to Damascus, friends. Jesus found him. And that is our first point, people. God is the one who seeks. I want you to remember in Romans 3, uh, written at least a couple decades after these events that Paul's talking about, Paul quotes the psalmist with reference to fallen man. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. He's referring to human beings in the flesh. If anyone's heart is moved to seek God, the Bible teaches it is the influence of the Holy Spirit at work because God definitely seeks. And we find Him because He reached out to us as He did to Paul on the way to Damascus. So He finds Saul of Tarsus and He calls to him by name. Now we see that Saul is confused here, and his response is almost funny. He says, who are you, Lord? Which is a question that answers itself, right? You may remember that, that the word Lord is the Greek word kurios, and, and it's sometimes, it's used as a formal sir, okay? Sort of like senor in Spanish, but it's also consistently the name that Jesus has referred to all throughout most of the New Testament. So is it possible that Paul had an inkling as to who this shiny dude was, <laughs> that was talking to him. I think maybe he did. But either way, don't miss the fact that Paul replies. Early in the process of God getting a hold of our hearts, although he seeks us, it is we who react to his overtures. Now something needs to be said here because I think, I think a lot of, of us, especially in the independent Christian world, uh, have a negative reaction when God talks about or when the Bible talks about election. Okay? We get this, this wrong impression that election or predestination removes any component of human choice. And I want to say this very clearly. Human beings are not robots. I think we all understand that. I think we all know that we make choices. We react, we reply, we respond to God's reaching out to us. Okay? Now, Paul didn't just shut down. He didn't put his head in the sand and wait to see what was going to come from this encounter. He asked Jesus, who are you, Lord? And when he did, Jesus responded, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, Scripture shows a pattern. Okay, Whenever we are willing, to, to those, perhaps I should say, to those who are willing to respond positively to the Lord, he provides revelation. Now, in this specific incidence, he tells Paul who he is, which I think is a very important plot point here because Paul, he would have been shocked, surely, right? He would have been really surprised to know that Jesus is, in fact, the risen Messiah, even though he's been trying to erase him from history. All of a sudden, he realizes this is legit. This guy's the real thing. But we also see from the very mouth of Jesus that to persecute his people is to persecute him. You know, surely when you love another person deeply, you feel the same way. If someone were to harm that person, you'd feel it. You know, you're affected by it. 
as though it were happening to you. How much more would it affect you if you were living inside that person as God's Holy Spirit indwells believers? You know, put yourself in Paul's place now. How, how terrifying would it be to discover you are on the wrong side of God? You are doing things to provoke his wrath by harming his people. That, that realization probably shook Paul up a whole lot more than the blindness did. Because he would have been familiar with that passage that he actually uses later in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In fact, when he wrote that second letter to the Thessalonians, he discusses God's comfort for persecuted Christians, but also God's vengeance against those who afflict God's people and comfort for the persecuted. So, so to believers, Paul wrote, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. But he says of their persecutors, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. You know, yikes! That's, that's scary if you're not on God's side. And so Paul is suddenly alerted to the fact that he's in the wrong and upsets his conscience. And we actually see that in this conversation. So uh, let's keep reading. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who is speaking to me. Now, this is really interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, first, the light apparently had a different effect on Paul than it did on the others. Because it blinded him. It didn't blind the others. Okay? Secondly, notice no one else understood the voice. You ever noticed that um, people respond differently at different times to the Word of God? Have you ever wondered why the gospel can be preached in a venue and it will affect some people and not others? You wonder why that is? If you respond to it, not somebody else, do you think, well, that's because I'm a better person. I have a better heart. I'm smarter than they... No, all of that is false. Okay? It's the same message, but some soil has been prepared to receive it. Good soil has been plowed. It's receptive. Anyway, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And he says, since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So as a result of God's revelation, Paul listened to him. And he, he expressed this willingness by asking the very simple question, what shall I do, Lord? God gave him some instructions, and Paul followed them. And we are called, likewise, to listen to His Word as He speaks to us. Now, biblically, I want to make this very clear. The word listen doesn't just mean register an auditory signal with your ears. Okay, that's not, that's not all He's talking. It, it indicates a willingness to receive that word and respond to it. And Paul suddenly understood that he was very very wrong in his way of looking at things, and now, now he was open to hearing whatever changes were necessary. And we should approach the Word of God in the same way. We should be prepared to listen to the Lord and to shape our, our minds and our attitudes and our lives accordingly. 
This is the proper response to God's initiative in speaking to us. We should listen. So now Paul, he's been led by the hand of Damascus. It's probably really confusing for the Christians there, right? Because they probably heard he was coming, wouldn't you think? And they would have been expecting somebody to, you know, pounding on the door at any moment. Instead, that there would be persecutors too busy fasting and praying about what God just showed him. And Paul continues, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all of the Jews who lived there, which this is an interesting statement, by the way, because Ananias was a follower of the way, and yet he's being spoken of highly by all the Jews. I just, that's interesting. Came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. Um, if you recall from Acts 9, Paul actually had thick cataracts over his eyes. Remember, it says something like scales fell from his eyes. Uh, maybe it's from staring into that light. Who knows? But they fell off of him when Ananias laid hands on him and prayed. And this, this is the next point that just leaps off the page at me, okay? God is the one who opens our eyes to see. God opens our eyes to see. And this is a really important thing, I think, for us to remember because it takes off the pressure of believing that we are responsible for arguing somebody into the kingdom of God. You can't argue someone into heaven. There, there are a lot of scriptures that back up this point. I'm just going to share a few. It was Christ himself who said in John 3, unless he be born again, in other words, this is a cause and effect statement, unless he be born again, no one can see the kingdom of God. Again, it was Jesus in Luke 10, who said, No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. When Peter was made, um, the, when he was called the Rock, gave him that name, Rocky, um, when Peter was before Christ making the great confession, he said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew 16, and Jesus told him that he was blessed. He said, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, tells us that the minds of unbelievers are covered by a veil, but when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Guys, if anybody would know, it's the dude who wrote that sentence. It's the Apostle Paul. He responded to God's initiative actions, and the Lord took away that veil, both, both of his, his physical eyes and from the eyes of his heart. And this is not simply for salvation. This is also for the progress of sanctification in the believer's life. Paul wrote in, in Ephesians 1.18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. In 2 Corinthians 4, he wrote of God, that he is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So God opens the eyes. We are to uh, present the evidence when we're sharing the gospel. We present the evidence by our words and by the testimony of our own lives, but God opens the eyes. Let's continue. And he, that's Ananias, said uh, to Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one, that's the revelation of Christ, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Which is exactly what Paul's doing right here. 
right? He's recounting this story. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, this is a, a loaded phrase. I want to briefly unpack it, okay? There are at least three views of this sentence. Those who believe that water immersion is the moment of justification will point to this passage and say it is the physical act of baptism that produces the corresponding spiritual cleansing of sins. Then there are those who say, well, baptism is a picture of the washing away of sin, and that's just a metaphor, which the Bible is certainly replete with. Okay, But the third view, which I find the most credible, is that the structure of the sentence in Greek indicates that Ananias is connecting calling on his name to the cleansing of sin. And I say this because of the and between be baptized and then the phrase, wash away your sins, calling on his name. So that's my take on this. But I will tell you this, it can be counterproductive for us to try to do too much parsing. You know, Peter said in Acts chapter 2, the baptism was, was ice, was into the forgiveness of sins. And then in Acts 3, he said, repent and turn back into the forgiveness of sins. So rather than trying to determine beyond a shadow of a doubt when a person's sin is washed away, I think the teaching of the Bible is very clear that water baptism is a non-negotiable part of the Christian experience, okay? So if you were to ask me, if you were to try to nail me down, is water baptism essential for, my, for salvation? My response would be that faith is essential for salvation, but baptism, confession, repentance, and obedience are all essential for the person of faith. If you have faith in Jesus, these are the things you need to be doing. You need to be confessing it. You need to be getting baptized. You need to be obeying Christ. You need to be repenting of your sins. To me, those are signs that, that you actually do believe. If you say you believe, but you're unwilling to do these things, how can you really believe? Now, if you, if you, I want to encourage you guys. If you're like, I, I want to understand baptism better, or at least you want to understand what I think about it better, um, you know, what does the Bible teach about it? You can email me at markbarrier at gmail.com. I will happily send you the download link from a sermon on Acts 2.38. Um, from, it was a couple of years ago. So we've been in Acts a while. <laughs> anyway, so um, just I'll happily send you that link. But let's get back to the text. So then, what do we learn from this paragraph spoken by Ananias? Lots, okay? First of all, we call upon the Lord for salvation. I mean, this is the proper response to having our eyes opened by the Lord, to call upon Him and only Him. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. None. This calling on the Lord can start as simply as saying, Help! But it should never stop there. The implication of calling on the name of the Lord is that you recognize you are a sinner that is in desperate need of His mercy and forgiveness. You know, scripture is plain that, that, that those who, uh, who call upon His name, that those who repent, He takes great pleasure in forgiving our sins. Do you realize that? God's not going, oh man, they repented. Now I can't hit the smite button. That's not how that works. God wants to forgive your sins. And you could argue he already did in Christ on the cross. He forgave the sins of the world. Have you received it though? That's what we're talking about here. 
Friend, if you seek His face, He forgives your sins. It doesn't matter what you're guilty of. His forgiveness is deeper and it's bigger than your sin. You might think, well, Mark, you don't, you don't know. You don't know what I'm guilty of. I've, I've committed adultery. I've, I've had an abortion. I, I've used and abused people. I've had an addiction that I just keep getting dragged back into. Church, look at Paul, okay? He was apparently at least a murderer. Just this morning, we looked at 1 John. Remember that? For those of you that were in Sunday school. It says, the one who hates his brother is a murderer and no murderer can have the life of God in him. Well, let me tell you something. Paul wasn't a murderer anymore, was he? What you did, that's in your past. I doubt anyone in this room has ever tortured a Christian to try to get them to deny Jesus, okay? But even if you have, Jesus died for that sin too. Stop living in the past. You know, the only time we ever see Paul mentioning the past is when it's part of his testimony. You ever notice that? Like he's not dwelling on it. You know, he doesn't seem to wrestle with guilt and condemnation over these things. And why do you suppose that is? Maybe he just really understands the overwhelming efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse him from sin. From the moment of his conversion, I mean, look at that. Paul, he continues to be zealous for God, but, but now he's got a totally new trajectory. You know, he's no longer enslaved to sin. Now he's a slave to Christ. And we see that same theme played out over the next three decades of his life. So, so brother, sister, listen, if you feel like you're being ineffective in the kingdom of God, ask yourself, have I truly accepted that the blood of Christ Jesus cleanses even me? Even my faults. For that matter, have you accepted that it cleanses your flawed but believing spouse? Or your flawed but believing boss? You know, if, if so, are, are you living joyfully in his forgiveness and extending it to others? Are you confidently walking in obedience? Because listen, make no mistake, okay? The proper response to his forgiveness ought to be that we obey him. You know, something that just jumps out of the story, we don't specifically read it here, but we do in Acts chapter 9, is that Paul immediately got up and went to be baptized before he even ate or drank. He'd been going without food or drink for three days, and yet he saw the necessity of obedience, and he took it so seriously that he needed to obey the Lord's command to be baptized. So I just want to say this, guys. We need to take obedience seriously too. Jesus didn't die for us to sin. He died to save us from it, both its penalty and its dominion. And the right way to receive the mercy of God is by living for Him, being empowered by His grace. And when we do this, it continually reassures us that we belong to Him. You see the evidence right there in your life. If you'd like to, to do, just turn with me, please. 2 Peter chapter 1. Just turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to explore this concept just a little bit further. I think it really is something we need to hear. I'm going to start in verse 3. Um, actually, I'll just tell you, you know, if you start in verse 3, what Peter does, he explains what God has done in us, 
giving the power to do what's right. He refers to us as partakers of the divine nature, and he gives us this list of qualities that we ought to add to our faith, uh, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and then love. But then he adds this, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind and he ought to know, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. You know, friend, friends, the right response to his forgiveness and cleansing is to practice righteousness. That means we ought to be doing the things he tells us to do. And we ought to be not doing the things he tells us not to do. Okay? It's really that simple a concept, although sometimes it's difficult to put into practice. But guys, if you focus on your past, it's like trying to drive a car going forward while keeping your eyes on the rearview mirror the whole time. It is a bad idea. Okay? So instead, truly receive his forgiveness. Receive it. Live in his grace. Focus on where the Lord is taking you and not where you were. And that's a good segue into our last comparison here. Uh, looking at verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, you may remember last week, that was the point where it became a total deal breaker for the crowd. Okay? They were, they were okay listening up to that point especially when they realized he was speaking in the Hebrew dialect, so Aramaic probably. And they're like, oh, he, he's speaking to us as a Jew. Let's listen to him. But when he said that God sent him to the Gentiles, that's when they decided to kill him. But I, this week, I want us to just note what is actually taking place, what's contained in this passage. Okay? God told Paul to move, and Paul moved. That's pretty much it. I mean, the truth of the matter is that, generally speaking, God guides his people if we are truly ready to listen. Now, I say generally speaking because I've been in at least one situation where I've asked God for clarity, and I just did not feel like I got a straight answer. It felt like it was whichever you choose, I'm with you. That's happened, okay? And in those cases, I think if you're truly seeking and you just don't sense a clear answer, then pick a direction and keep going, okay? And then if you're wrong, I think he's going to let you know. But he gives us direction when we ask him for it, when we're ready to listen. That's a key. You've got to be ready to listen. But when he leads, our response must be to follow his lead. You know, if you're here this morning and you're you're awake, even if you're not awake, okay? If you're here this morning, it's probably safe to say that you've at least chosen to follow his lead to some extent because you're attending a Bible-teaching church that doesn't pull a lot of punches with a lot of other Christians who are born again and are trying to live for Jesus. 
So you got that for, going for you. That's good, okay? But maybe you haven't gone far enough. If you have, have not placed your faith in Christ, confessed Him as your risen Lord, been baptized and begun walking in obedience, do it today. Do it today. Don't waste time. Follow His lead. And this is where I would normally close, but it's all right. You can come on up, Everett, because it'll take you a while. <laughs> um, I, have, I have one more thing I want to add. For those of you who are living in frustration or anxiety or even depression, because you, you feel like you've been trying to respond in the best way that you know how, but God just doesn't seem to be reciprocating. Maybe you feel like you would give almost anything to feel like he's at work in you, and right now you're just surviving. I want to tell you something. The Apostle Paul has been there too. I want to finish with this passage from 2 Corinthians 1. It says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we believed that we had received a death sentence. Can you identify? But, he says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises dead friend keep leaning on him keep crying out to him don't give up don't quit he is he is there and then Paul concludes his experience saying he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again and he's right to have that hope because God will be faithful to you. Do everything you can to trust him, even if you don't feel him right now. Cling to him. Hold on to him. Ask your, your church for prayer, not just once. Keep asking. Seek fellowship that encourages you, but don't give up. Do not give up. God loves you. This church loves you. And, and I just want to say this morning... I want to encourage you each this morning, listen, listen to the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's, there's a, some things up here that you can look. If you haven't already done these things, consider it this morning. God is waiting. He is patient. But he will not wait forever. Respond to his revelation. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to preach your word to your people through the power of your spirit. Lord, I, I do not understand how your sovereign election works with our choices, I, but I know that they're both scriptural to some extent. And Father, I, I pray for each person here, if they're debating whether to take that step, that you push them that extra bit, Lord. I do believe no one will see you unless you open their eyes. No one seeks you apart from you placing your spirit in their life and causing some sort of a desire to seek after you. So, Lord, we know that you initiate, but help us to respond correctly. I ask that nobody leaves here unsaved. For those who are here that are saved, I ask that no one leaves here unsanctified in some way. May your Holy Spirit do a mighty work in each person here. 
plant seeds in us. Make us good soil that bears great fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name.